please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 this morning. The title for our message is Play the Man. As you're turning there, please remember what Moses told the children of Israel, that this word is no idle word to you, but it is your very life. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, as your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, prayed, not only for his disciples, but for all the church in all ages, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, that's what we need this morning. We need more sanctification. We need to be moved by your spirit through the power of your word, Lord, from one degree of glory to another, Lord, and your word, we confess, is the only place where that can happen. And so, God, cause our hearts to bow in reverence and awe to you today as the master of the universe addresses us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. As you can see, we are fairly close to wrapping up this letter And it's a long letter. Um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is, is second in length only to his letter to the Romans. And so at the end of a long letter, how does one wrap it up with so many instructions and rebukes and promises and doctrines? Well, you summarize. And that's what Paul is doing here in these two verses, he's actually summarizing the entire letter with five commands. And the first four of these commands, you'll notice, has a military flavor to them. They're the kind of things that a military commander would say to his troops. And so, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. In other words, Paul is telling the Corinthians, and by extension us, to play the man. Similar to what Joab told Abishai, his brother, when they were surrounded by Syrians and Ammonites on the field in battle. He said, be of good courage, let us play the man for our people and for the cities of our God. Paul is here addressing the church militant. The church triumphant is the church that has already won the battle. They are already in, in glory, and he is addressing us, those who are still here. And these commands represent our charge. 
play the man. And Paul's charge here is not so much focused on masculinity. That's not the point. It's maturity. He's focusing on maturity. Remember, this was the problem that the Corinthians were guilty of. They were, they were spiritual babies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And I, I think that's actually pretty good news because some of us in this room are still spiritual babies. And no doubt that's understatement. All of us, in certain categories of our life, are spiritual babies. And Paul here is calling us, charging us to play the man. Beloved, it, it, this life is not peacetime. Human history is, is one long holy war. Paul said in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Life is war. And this is one of the reasons why so many saints become disheartened, because they forget, they think it's peacetime. And so they've stopped being watchful, they stopped standing firm, they've stopped acting like men. Beloved, you are a Christian soldier. Play the man. But Paul doesn't stop there. He adds a seemingly diverse fifth commandment in verse 14. He says, let all that you do be done in love. I think this is a strange conjoining of two seemingly adverse qualities, war and love. Be bold as lions, but tender as lambs. Without this final exhortation to love, all of our warring is worthless. Yes, we engage in battle. Yes, we have no choice, but we do so empowered by the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's our big idea this morning. Life is war. Therefore, we must watch, stand, act, and love like men created in Christ Jesus. And those four parts constitute our outline. We're to watch like a man, stand like a man, act like a man, and love like a man. So let's look first of all at watch like a man. Paul's First command here in verse 13 is to be watchful. It means to be awake, <laughs> which is a rather interesting command on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I can see all of you. You know that, right? <laughs> Some of you have no shame. <laughs> be vigilant. Be on the alert. This is what sentries do. Uh, uh, sentries are those soldiers that are stationed to keep guard over access points. They patrol the borders. And their chief duty is to watch against those enemies that are invading. 
And here Paul is calling the Corinthian church to be spiritual sentries. He's saying, be alert. Don't fall asleep. Watch for enemies. What would you say the chief enemy of the Corinthian church was? Certainly it was their own sin. Certainly it was their own sin. Only one time in this letter does Paul mention Satan as an enemy. It was in the context of marriage where he tells husbands and wives don't deprive one another um, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So yes, Satan is an enemy that we need to be watchful of, but the chief enemy that the Corinthians failed to be watchful of was their own sin. Consider some of the major problems in Corinth. So why did they have factions and divisions? Because they were filled with jealousy over each other. Chapter 3, verse 3. Why did they permit sexual immorality in the church? Paul says it was because they were arrogant. Chapter 5, verse 2. Why were some of them taking each other to court? Because they were greedy. Chapter 6, verse 8, and verse 11. Beloved, where do these sins, jealousy, arrogance, and greed begin? They begin in the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, Jesus said, Matthew 15, 19. And so we arrive at our first principle this morning. The first place sin invades is in your heart. The first place that sin invades is in your heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Children, boys and girls, do you remember the great sin that King David was guilty of? Well, he was guilty of Stealing Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then killing Uriah, right? When did that sin begin? What was the first step towards that sin? Some of you who know the story, you might say, well, David was walking around on his rooftop and he saw her bathing and so he was filled with lust. That's certainly where the sin began, right? Actually, we have to go back further than that. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 says, In the springtime, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, but David remained at Jerusalem. Oh, okay, someone might say, well, that's when sin began. David neglected his duty as king, to go out to battle with his troops, so he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we actually have to press it further than that, don't we? Why? Why didn't David go out to battle when he knew it was his duty? Because he failed to watch over his own heart. David allowed an enemy to invade his heart, and that enemy demanded 
worship? What was that enemy that demanded his worship? Personal comfort, personal ease, personal rest and relaxation. Just read the text. He's lounging around on his couch in the middle of the afternoon while his men are fighting in war. The problem is that David allowed comfort to demand his worship more than God. And when David failed to be watchful over his own heart, he committed the greatest sins of his life. So Paul is exhorting us here, be watchful, be watchful. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What is the most effective way to be watchful? How are we to do this? I would argue that the most effective way to be watchful is through prayer. Paul mentions prayer in this epistle more than any other letter. So so we must pray if we're going to be watchful. Jesus specifically joined prayer and watchfulness together. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Beloved, your flesh is too weak. It's too anemic. It's too clogged up with the concerns of this life for you to be watchful on your own. You need the power of the spirit. And that comes through prayer. Power comes through prayer. This is what the scripture promises. Listen to James 5, 16 through 18. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah prayed and it stopped raining. Certainly when we pray, we can gain power to be watchful over our hearts. That's what Hebrews 4.16 alludes to. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Prayer that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can we be watchful if we're not in prayer? Show me a person who is not a praying person, and I'll show you a person who is losing the battle to temptation and to sin. On the other hand, consider how much more difficult it is to sin when you commit yourself to prayer. It's actually really difficult. Think about it. Um, What happens to your complaining and to your grumbling when you're just consistently giving thanks to God for all that he's given you. Thank you for my bed. Thank you for my pillow. Thank you for my alarm clock. Thank you for my refrigerator. Thank you for beer. (laughs) It's difficult to complain when you're filled with thankfulness. What happens to your self-righteous judging of other people when you are asking God to pour out his mercy upon them. Oh God, pour out your mercy upon that person. Give them your blessing. Open their hearts. Soften them. What will happen to you? Soften your heart. What happens to your lust when you interrupt it with prayer? 
Oh God, deliver me from this temptation. Oh God, provide a way of escape that I may be able to bear it. Does not God provide help when we pray like that? Beloved, prayer is the chief way to be watchful and guard our hearts. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So that's our first point. How do we watch like men? We pray. Our second point. Stand like a man. We see Paul's second command here in verse 13. He says, stand firm in the faith. The word for stand firm, stako, it means to persevere or to persist. To persevere. This is what soldiers must do when they're under attack. They must stand fast. They must persevere. They must hold their ground. And, and Paul adds a qualifier here. We're to stand firm in the faith. In the faith. Paul here doesn't mean my subjective faith, my trusting, my believing, my hoping. No, he means the faith, the faith once delivered, the content of the gospel itself. This is what we're to stand firm in. This is what Paul said earlier in chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And it's clear that this is what the Corinthians were actually failing to do. Specifically, they were being seduced in their assembly by worldly philosophies that were drawing them away from the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul had to rebuke them because they were falling prey to the rhetoric of the sophists. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's the work of the sophist. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Many of the Corinthians apparently had come to look at the truth of God itself as foolishness because Paul wasn't orating it in an eloquent way. Furthermore, in chapter 15, verse 12, Paul had to rebuke them for failing to stand against the philosophy of the Gnostics. Remember, they denied the physical resurrection. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? What did their failure to stand firm in the faith lead to? What did it lead to? Well, for some of them, it led to legalism. Some married couples stopped sleeping together because their particular form of Gnosticism taught that physical intercourse was evil. Chapter 7, verse 1. On the other hand, for others, it led them to prostitution. Some were visiting brothels because their particular form of Gnosticism taught that what you do with your body doesn't matter at all. 
chapter 6, verse 12. For those who applied their Gnostic philosophy to the resurrection, it led to the destruction or absurdity of the Christian faith. Paul said in chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So we arrive at our second principle, false doctrine undermines our faith and our practice. False doctrine undermines our faith and our practice. Paul told the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The church that I grew up in was actually fairly similar to the Corinthian church. Now, they weren't Gnostics, but they were antinomian. That's the opposite error of legalism. Legalism, the legalist says that God accepts him in part because of his good works. In other words, God's saving depends on how we follow the law. The antinomian, on the other hand, says that God doesn't care how we live at all. In other words, the law has nothing to say to our behavior whatsoever. Now, that, what was, that is what was essentially taught in the church that I grew up in. It's a form of easy believism. Just, just believe, don't worry about the law, that has nothing to do with anything. And that is a devastating view. It's a devastating view, loved ones. I was at a friend's house growing up under this teaching. We were, I think we, we might have been 12 or, or 13 years old. And he understood that message loud and clear. It was through him, a church kid, that I was first introduced to pornography and marijuana. When I asked him what God said about these things, he simply said, well, we're not under the law the law doesn't have anything to do with our lives. From what I can tell, he never changed his mind on those things. And, and just a few years ago, that man committed suicide. Wrong doctrine destroys lives. Consider at least two major controversies that we've seen in evangelicalism in the last 20 years, the emergent church and the woke church, how many Christians have fallen prey to those false doctrines? Why? Because they didn't stand firm in the faith. Yes, of course it's true that we should test all things and hold fast to what is good, but that doesn't mean that we should call into question the fundamentals of the faith once delivered. Charles Hodge says this here, quote, do not consider every point of doctrine an open question. Matters of faith, doctrines for which you have a clear revelation of God, such, for example, as the doctrine of the resurrection, are to be considered settled. And as among Christians, no longer matters of dispute. 
They are doctrines embraced in the creeds of all Orthodox churches so clearly taught in Scripture that it is not only useless but hurtful to always be calling them into question. So let's examine ourselves for a moment. Are we bringing worldly philosophies into our faith and practice? Are you holding on to things that would essentially undermine the faith? And perhaps you don't know. Perhaps you say, I don't know. Well, pray what David prayed then. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's our second point. How do we stand like men? We never go beyond what is written. We must study the Bible, read the Bible, pray the Bible, hear the Bible, obey the Bible, judge everything in life by what the Bible says. Let's turn to our third point. Act like a man. Act like a man. We'll take the third and fourth commandment here in verse 13. Paul says, act like men. Be strong. Two commands. The first, act like men. It's one word in the Greek and it means to show yourself to be a man. Be brave. Be courageous. Why do the Corinthians have to be told to be courageous? Why was that necessary? Well, because to, to be consistent in Christian doctrine and practice, the previous command, if you're going to stand firm in the faith, then you will be scorned by the world. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If the Corinthians were going to obey the previous command, they were going to be hated for it, and they would need courage to stand. And don't you see that this is the same truth that is very visible today? I mean, just... If you've watched the news at all, what, what has happened since Roe v. Wade was overturned? What was the one thing, the one institution that has been consistently attacked above everything else? Christianity. Standing on the word is going to cost us. So we have to have courage. We have to act like men. How? How do we find courage? Well, that's answered by the fourth command. He says, be strong. Be strong. When I was reading this, I, I feel like that sounds a little trite, doesn't it? Just be strong, Christian. Tap your inner strength. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be strong. Come on. But that's actually not what Paul is saying at all. The verb for be strong is in the passive voice. You should write that in your Bible. Passive 
voice next to be strong. Whenever a verb is in the passive voice, it means that the subject is receiving the action. He's not doing the action. If it was in the active voice, he would be doing the action. But here, it's in the passive voice. So literally, it should read, be strengthened. Paul is not commanding us to strengthen ourselves. He's telling us to channel the strength of another. And that brings us to our third principle. Courage and strength come from Jesus Christ alone. Courage and strength come from Jesus Christ alone. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My strength come from, my help, my strength comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Children, boys and girls, where did Samson get his strength? I wonder if some of you have those picture Bibles at home. I, I checked before I wrote this down this morning. I was pretty sure I was right. If you open those picture Bibles, what does Samson look like? He looks like, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Incredible Hulk. Like he's totally decked out. He kind of looks like me, sort of. <laughs> um, he always has big muscles in those books, right? I mean, why not? He ripped apart a lion with his bare hands, Judges 14.6. He killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Certainly he has muscles. Certainly somewhere in the text it says he has big muscles, right? No, not one place. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. What does the Bible say about him performing these mighty deeds? It says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. His strength didn't come from his muscles. After all, we know that um, he lost all of his strength when he disobeyed the Lord. No, the source of his strength came from God alone. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. So how does this rebuke us then? Well, it rebukes us when we think that we're strong in ourselves. One author says here that the person who thinks that he is strong in himself is in the greatest danger of falling. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. God does not want us to rely on our own strength for two main reasons. Number one, you don't have any. And number two, he wants to be glorified in giving it to you. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Don't you realize that God purposely weakened the Apostle Paul, by sending a thorn in his flesh, and Paul begged him three times, Lord, please remove it, please remove it. And God told him, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Some of you are so frustrated right now because you feel weak in your life. You feel helpless in your life. Newsflash. You are weak and you are helpless. And, and I don't say that at all to make fun of you or to make light of your situation. The truth is, is that all of us are weak and all of us are helpless. The rest of us who are not feeling that way, because I think the temptation is, is we look and we compare from person to person and we say, well, that person is strong. Look at him. That person is one sickness away. That, that person is one accident away, one untimely death away, one job, less, uh, one job loss away from experiencing that weakness themselves. Your strength doesn't come from you. It comes from the Lord. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You see what comfort this brings us? Do you see? You could be the, the weakest, most downtrodden, sickly saint in the world and you can still find strength. Where do our Chinese and Afghan brothers and sisters who are rotting in jail right now for preaching the gospel, where do they find strength? Where does the little old woman who's dying of cancer find strength? How will you find strength when all around your soul gives way? When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand we sing that that's where our strength is found and that's how we act like a man that's where we find strength by looking to the rock from which we were hewn look to Christ. Don't look to your own resources. Stop looking at those broken cisterns. Go to the fountain of living water. Cast your burdens on him. Hope in him. Trust in him. Wait on the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's our third point. How do we act like men and be strong? By finding all our strength in Christ Jesus. So let's look at our last point. Love like a man. The fifth command is found in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Notice the first four commands were military metaphors, but Paul abruptly leaves that metaphor to talk about love. And by doing so, he conjoins seemingly adverse qualities, love and war. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. But remember that the Corinthians erred most in their lack of love, both to God and to each other. I mean, they were beset with factions, with divisions, 
with looking to their own selfish desires on issues of conscience and the spiritual gifts. They got drunk while eating the Lord's Supper while other people went away hungry. Loveless was the dominant undertow that prevailed beneath all their sins. And so Paul reminds them that these other commands that he just gave them, those things, don't forget those things, but those things must be done in love. If they were to pull off the first four commands without love, they would be in danger. This is what Jesus told the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Remember, he commended them for their standing against heresy. He commended them for standing against false apostles, for all of their perseverance in doing things for the glory of God. But he said this, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Revelation 2.4. And he warned them if, he didn't, if, the, if he, they didn't repent, that he would come and take away their lampstand. He would come, remove the Holy Spirit, and they would stop being a true church. That's how vital this command is. It's the anchor of all five. We could do everything else right, but if we fail at this one thing, the church is in danger of being removed. And so we arrive at our fourth principle this morning. Without love, all is for naught. I actually think that we are a lot like the Corinthians. I think that this particular thing is the thing that we all struggle with the most. Listen how Paul says that the rest of your life can look perfect. But if you don't have this one thing, love, you're nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Everything depends upon love. Those without love are destitute of everything else. So let's examine ourselves. Why do we fail to love? What are the causes of our lovelessness? Well, first of all, it's impossible to love if you have not been born again. Why? Well, because God says that we must love our neighbor as ourselves, but if you I've not been born again, if you've not turned to Christ and received him as your Savior and your Lord, you don't love yourself. You're at war with yourself. You're, you're laying a trap for your own soul. You, you hate yourself because you're willingly leading yourself to judgment. The scripture says that if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. I beg you. 
I plead with you, show true love for yourself and bring your sins to the Savior this morning. The Scripture promises that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then for the first time, you'll be able to love. The second cause of our lovelessness, and specifically for believers, the second cause of our lovelessness is a lack of communion with God. The Bible says that God is love. And having communion with the God of love will cause our hearts to love. The less you're drinking from that fountain, the less you are in communion with him, the less you're going to be a loving person. And the third cause of lovelessness is worldliness. The third cause of lovelessness is worldliness. Jesus says that when the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, it proves unfruitful. Test yourself. Is the fruit of your love being choked out? Because you're feasting off the world. So how do we recover lost love? Find ourselves in a situation where we feel loveless, where our heart feels cold. Where there's other commands, yeah, maybe I can do that. Those, but this one, this one, no. How do we recover? We simply start with confession. Lord, I confess. I confess, Lord, that I've grown loveless. I have not sought you as I ought. I have been selfish. I have been self-serving. Please forgive me because I have sinned. Then what? Then you look to Christ. Then you look to Christ. We can recover our lost love by looking to him who first loved us. Beloved, do you understand that Jesus Christ is the personification of these verses? He is the perfect union of war and love. Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, left the father's throne to come forth into war. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to earth for war. He came to fight for us. And all of these commands he perfectly personified. He was watchful over his own soul, obeying everything that the Father willed. He stood firm firm in the truth of God, never turning to the right or to the left. He played the man in every way. Even when his disciples abandoned him, Jesus never lost courage. Even when his father um, forsook him on the cross, he stayed the course. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is 
the infinitely holy one. He is the burning coal on the altar. He came into the world as a conquering king, and he conquered by dying. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is where his warring joins with his loving. Why would Jesus die for people like you and me? We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Even after we have been saved, we fall short every day. I can't even tell you how many conversations I've had this week with Christians who have been Christians for decades, and they say things like, I'm still failing. Why would God love you? We've hid our faces from him. We've despised him. We've esteemed him not. Yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Not because we loved him, but because he loved us. He played the man for us. Jesus was the greatest man of war and the greatest man of love. Praise him, loved ones. Worship him, adore him, extol him, honor him, esteem him. Behold, the lion and the lamb, the creator who became creature, the king who became a sacrifice, the invincible God who bled and died. That's how we recover lost love. By looking to Christ who loves us though we sin against him still. That's how we become watchful, by looking to Christ who is watchful over us, who ever lives to intercede for us. That's how we stand firm in the faith, by looking to Christ who stood firm unto death for you and I. And that's how we can act like men and be strong. By looking to Christ who played the man for you and me and said, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, We know that these commands are so critical to obey. That devastation comes when we fail to be watchful over our soul. When we don't stand firm in the faith once delivered. When we're not strengthened by Christ. And when we fail to love. We know devastation follows. So Lord, help us to obey these commands. Oh Lord, help us to remember where all that strength comes from. Because we are united to Christ, we are not expected to obey these commands alone, but you have given us your Holy Spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us power. It's not by our might. It's not by our power, but it's by your spirit that we will prevail. 
So, Lord, strengthen us, we pray. Help us to play the man. For Jesus' sake, amen.